Hello everyone and welcome back or welcome to the Human Condition podcast. Think about your favorite sport and your favorite player. Now think about how you would describe them when they are in the zone doing what they do best. When LeBron James inexorably maneuvers the players to put the ball in the hoop. When Lionel Messi is just breezing past world-class defenders and deceiving a world-class goalkeeper to chip the ball over him. When Usain Bolt is bolting past everyone like a cheetah. When Michael Phelps behaves like a fish as if his natural habitat is supposed to be the water. When Nadia Comaneci, the girl who got the first perfect 10 in gymnastics, shows the balance of a mountain goat. Or when Virat Kohli drives the cricket ball sweetly through the covers. When they do that, we say that it was beautiful. When they do something like that, we go without even really noticing that we do that. That admiration is visceral. Now what fascinates me is this. A game or a sport is basically a contest in which the participants have certain rules and an ultimate objective. For example, the objective in football is to put the ball in the net more times than your opponent does. The objective of chess is to trap and make the opponent's king surrender. Every game and sport has its own set of rules and an objective which is what the participants try to achieve. But as you notice here, there is no mention of beauty. Beauty is not required in competitive sport. All one needs to do is achieve the objective. But a great act of sport is beautiful and we admire it. In fact, sport is one of the important venues, so to speak, where beauty is manifested. That brings me to the question, what is it with humans and sports? So in this episode, we are going to explore briefly a little bit of history of sports, the psychology and also the sociology of sports. A friend of mine at work asked me a piece of trivia to guess what kind of sports were played in the ancient times. I got one of them correct, which was wrestling, but it got me thinking as to why the hell we have been playing sports for so long. And why do so many of us like watching sports? After all, the 2008 Beijing Olympics were watched by 4.7 billion viewers. What's so appealing about sports to humans that we have a primal need to engage in them? Playing sports was something that the ancient Egyptians and Sumerians did in order to prepare themselves for war or for hunting. I mean, javelin throw? That has throwing a spear at an opponent in war or at an animal while hunting written all over it. We can clearly see where the game evolved from. In ancient Greece, one of the society's underlying principles was to strive for excellence in body and mind. This pursuit for excellence in ancient Greece clearly manifested itself when they organized the first event of what is today known as the Olympics. Guess when the first Olympic Games took place? Yeah, I'll give you a moment. It was first held in 776 BC in Olympia near Mount Olympus where all the mythological Greek gods and goddesses supposedly have lived. 776 BC, that's almost like 3000 years old. These were held more like a religious event in honor of Zeus, where athletes competed in games such as sprinting, wrestling, chariot racing and pancreation, which is the equivalent of the modern day MMA, mixed martial arts, where you can use any technique you wish. 
you can box, you can wrestle, you can kick, choke, submit, anything you want except biting and eye gouging. The point was that the strongest man should win. I say man because of course women at that time were not allowed to participate in the Olympics. They had a smaller event of their own which was also held in Olympia in honor of Zeus's wife, well one of Zeus's wives, Hera. So sport clearly has a great historical significance. But what about the psychological significance of it? A game or a sport, someone like John Piaget would suggest, is like a microcosm of our world. This made me think quite a bit because it really is a beautiful analogy. This analogy is captured somewhat fittingly in the game of chess. Well, chess is actually considered a sport and not a game by the international committee, but that's not important. What's important is the complexity of it and what it represents. The number of possible legal moves in chess is stellar. It's something like 10 to the power of 100 or something close to that. To master the game of chess is nearly a superhuman achievement in the realm of analysis and calculation. It also represents something which is an intimate human condition, which is war. Because chess is a war game. I mean, look at the pieces of chess. There are the pawns, which represent the foot soldiers. We have the rook, which is derived from the Persian word roh. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but it means a chariot. You have the knights, which are pretty straightforward. Well, not in the way they move, of course, but they're straightforwardly a military unit. Then you have the bishop and then the queen, the most powerful piece on the board, which in ancient India was known as the wazir or the minister. Then there is the king, the person around whom the entire game revolves. The ultimate objective of the game is to kill the opponent's king by trapping him. The term checkmate is derived from the Farsi Shahmat, which means the king is dead. So you can see the clear analogy of chess with war. There's something very human about this and the way we construct it. It's a beautiful sport because it's very objective and it has no real ambiguity in determining who won the war. If your king is trapped, you lose. Of course, sports and games do not entirely act like a microcosm of reality itself because although our lives don't have clear ultimate objectives, games and sports do. This makes it very exciting because now the game or sport becomes something that we have constructed certain parameters around to find out what the best result is that could be produced. There is a search for truth here, which is, Given these rules and laws and constraints, you, as a human, show me the best you got. When we play sports, this is the challenge that we have to overcome. What can I do? What's possible to do? These are the challenges in front of us and we respond to them to strive for excellence and push our limits. To be faster, higher, stronger. Which, by the way, is the motto of the Olympics. In Latin, it is Sitius Altius Fortius. Now the same challenges when elite athletes face, the best in the world, like the creme de la creme, then it becomes the challenge of not what I as an individual can do, but it's about what can humans do. What is humanly possible and how can a human achieve the best result possible within these circumstances? Then that sets the path for others to explore the territory and make even more progress. For example, the first time a human broke the 10-second barrier to run a 100-meter race was when Jim Hines broke it in 1968. 
he recorded a time of 9 minutes 55 seconds. Then over the next decade or so, 10-15 other people broke the record which was earlier thought of as not possible. And these days, 10 seconds is not a big deal at the elite level. That's just one example of pushing our boundaries as a human. Take a look at Eliud Kipchoge, a member of a small tribal clan in Kenya called the Talai. Kipchoge is considered the greatest marathoner to have ever lived. On a sunny afternoon in Vienna, the 12th day of October 2019, he ran a marathon, which is 26 miles or 42.2 kilometers in less than 2 hours. 1 hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds to be precise. This was considered unattainable before he went ahead and smashed it. As someone who has only recently started to run, I cannot even comprehend what it takes to run a marathon in less than 2 hours. It really is a true mark of human endurance and achievement. During the final minute of the race, the commentator said the following, which I think fits right into what we are talking about. He said, quote, We had Neil Armstrong on the moon in 1969. We had Roger Bannister, who broke the 4-minute mile barrier in 1954. We had Edmund Hillary, the first man to climb the Everest in 1953. We have one minute to go. Elliot Kipchoge is on his way here. This humble man, who used to run two miles every day from his school and back to sell milk at the local market, is now here through hard work and discipline. Elliot Kipchoge has the hand of history on his shoulder. You can hear him saying, We had Neil Armstrong on the moon, or We had Edmund Hillary on Everest. We have Kipchoge here. By we, he means humanity. We have done this. We have shown what is possible. And this truly was a mark of the human condition to pursue excellence. This is an honest pursuit of truth as to what is humanly possible and that's why there is integrity at stake here. Because you can't cheat in the pursuit of truth. You're only deceiving yourself and the rest of humanity by doing that. This is probably why things like cheating scandals are taken so damn seriously in sports. Take a look at the doping scandal Lance Armstrong got caught in. The man won seven Tour de France titles and was stripped of all of them because he was allegedly and later admittedly using performance enhancement drugs. Another example. Look at the sandpaper gate incident in cricket. The Australian cricket team travelled to South Africa in 2018 to play a tournament. It was quite a heated tournament and both teams had won one game each and in the third game, members of the Australian cricket team had done something stupid. They were openly caught on camera tampering with the cricket ball or changing the condition of the ball by rubbing a little bit of sandpaper on it. Now for those of you who don't know about the game or what the big deal is, a cricket ball involves a lot of physics from the point it is thrown by the person who is bowling and hit by the batter. Since it travels at high speeds, even a little change in the condition of the ball can alter the course or the path of the ball, making it harder for the batter to hit it. This incident blew out of proportion overnight and even the Prime Minister of Australia criticized his players for doing something so wrong. The captain and the vice-captain were stripped down of their privileges and the three players involved were given a one-year ban on playing the game. Now this may seem like a big punishment for just rubbing a little sandpaper on a ball, but I think the issue here points to the integrity of the game and the spirit of the game. 
This means that we are not here to win and prove our individual greatness, but we are here to serve the game and to seek truth, so to speak, as to how we can do our best in certain circumstances. You can't just alter, adjust or modify the circumstances to your benefit. That doesn't fit with the ethics of sports. Another important thing sport does, especially to the people who start playing at a young age, is that it really makes you confront your limitations as a human at a very young age. This is done in a healthy way most of the time because it really is impossible for you to not face a challenge that you cannot overcome. Everyone loses in sport. Every single person. The Roger Federer's, the Serena Williams's, the Tiger Woods, the Magnus Carlsen's, everyone loses and everyone faces a situation in which they feel almost helpless and this is when they confront their limitation which comes as a smack in the face which says, do better. This is a very humbling thing that sport does in my opinion and in a very healthy way. I actually have a personal experience to share here because I really was terrible at dealing with the confrontations I had with my limitations. Some of my friends may know this, but I had given most of my tests and exams while studying my bachelor's high. This was when I was studying engineering. I used to smoke a lot of pot and just do barely enough to pass my exams. Now the fact was, I did not like doing engineering and I was not a good engineer. That's not what I wanted to do in life and that's probably why I wasn't getting good grades. But rather than face how terrible I was at engineering and do something about it, I convinced myself that, you know what, I got bad grades not because I'm bad at engineering, but because I gave all my tests while being high and I used to party and so on. I made excuses and went on to do the same thing again and again, each time justifying my actions. Now I'll save the story about my relationship with pot for another episode on the human condition of addiction, but my point is that it's really hard to get away with such stuff in sports. In sports, when you're not good enough, you'll see that the opponent is clearly much better than you and you have to work hard and get better to overcome your weaknesses. There's no other way around it. You cannot escape these confrontations, which is good, humbling, inspiring even. So let's leave it there and move to the sociology and culture around sports. One of the sports I follow closely is football or soccer. And I am a Chelsea football club supporter and I watch all their games and I know their history, I know their ups and downs, I know about their management, I kind of know about the spirit of the club and how they operate. I even have an emotional attachment with each of the players of the club. Now this is a bit weird because I have never met any of these players in my life. I have never been to the Chelsea Stadium which is Stamford Bridge in London. I've never been to London, nor was I ever even in the UK. So why do I support them? Why does this matter to me so much? I didn't really know, so I gave it some thought. And I realized that all of these narrations from the fans, the identity of the club, the spirit of the club, and the spirit of the game itself represent and evoke something very tribal within us. This notion of us versus them has been instilled within us since the start of civilization itself. We behave as members of a tribe and we defend that tribe as a community, support them and take pride in their achievements 
and share grief in their defeat. Now, I agree that in my case, it's still a bit odd that I chose my tribe to be some club that's halfway across the world from me. But I realized that it was because there were certain things and people that inspired me and stood for what I love in the game of football who belong to this club. Ever since then, I've become an aficionado or a fan, which is short for fanatic of the club. But looking at the sociological perspective, where sports are seen as a part of the culture of, let's say, a certain town, also represents some of the class struggles that take place within groups. For example, a small town football team beats the big city team and they look at the win as the triumph of the unrecognized, the insignificant over the wealthy, spoiled kids from the city. In this way, sports do tend to be seen as a product of social class relations. Not just socio-cultural, but also there is a socio-economic aspect to sports, isn't there? Especially since the 19th century, when capital seemed to penetrate everyday culture. Spectators have to pay to enter the stadiums and watch the players perform. And there is also a hierarchy that represents class distinctions like the VIP area and the members area, the corporate boxes and the common area and so on. The sports market is also segmented and stratified in terms of privilege. For example, golf and tennis are usually more easily accessible to the socially advantaged, while many of the team sports don't enjoy this prestige for some weird reason I can't put my finger on. So I'll just conclude there and I'll finish by saying that something like sport that seeps so deeply into our psyche and society should be observed with the attention it deserves and I hope that you think about the significance of sport in our lives and society after listening to this because after all, that's the point of the episode, to make you think about it with a renewed interest. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks with a different topic. If you have any suggestions in mind, please send them my way and let me know your thoughts about the podcast. I always appreciate that.